Welcome to Conversations for Life, a marriage and family podcast from Cross Life with hosts Jonathan and Kathleen. Each episode, we sit down and talk about things that matter most to those that matter most to you. We're so glad you're with us today. Please pull up a chair and join us in the conversation. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Conversations for Life. Today, it's just going to be me, Jonathan. I'm going to be following up on our conversation last week with Dr. Craig Evans about the reliability of Scripture. And uh, this is a really important topic, and that's why I'm going to spend some time today talking about it. In fact, I I would say that in terms of parenting and equipping uh, your kids in um, what they need to know so that as they are growing, their faith is growing, I think there are fewer topics of greater importance than this one. I mean, everything for Christians begins and ends with the Bible. If we don't understand how the Bible was written, if we don't know how to interact with critical arguments against what Christians believe about the Bible, if we just leave our kids to figure it out on their own, then we are doing a poor job as parents equipping our kids to grow in their faith. This is so foundational. Uh, if a parent isn't doing this, I, they really can't be doing anything to help their kids spiritually develop because everything else in the Christian life flows out of Scripture. All that we believe, all that we hold to be true about how to live life, about who God is, who Jesus is, salvation, everything we we decide about our lives, all of it really ultimately comes from the Bible and what we believe about the Bible and what the Bible says. Um, Imagine if, if parenting our kids toward growth in Christian faith was like a marathon. Right, a marathon has twenty six point two miles. So let's just say that, for the sake of the, of the argument, that each one of those mile markers represents an important area of growth as a believer, going from childhood to adulthood. So things like understanding who God is, that He's one being in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, knowing that Jesus is God incarnate, that He is both fully God and fully man, knowing the significance of Jesus' death on the cross and His resurrection. Understanding that we are made in God's image, right? There are so many topics that we could say are vital for a young person to understand as they are growing in their faith. But uh, the thing is, mile one of that marathon is the Bible. What is the Bible? Is it trustworthy? Is it divinely inspired? How do we read it? That is the mile marker one. So a young person who's never engaged in that question a parent who's never explored this question with their middle school or high school age kid is a parent who cannot have done anything else regarding faith because the Bible is the foundation. It's the beginning. It's mile one of faith formation. So there are many areas where moms and dads absolutely need to engage with their kids and explore together about what Christians believe and how it plays out in our lives. But the most important one of all, the most basic, the most foundational is the issue of the Bible itself. What is it? How do we get it? What are the most basic components of the Bible? How do we read it? How can we respond to criticisms that people make about it? All of these questions have to be explored by a parent with a child periodically as they're growing into adulthood. To put it another way, it's fine if your five-year-old has a cute, wonderful, innocent, beautiful five-year-old understanding and trust of the Bible. You know, that song is uh, the Bible, that's the book for me, the B-I-B-L-E, yeah, that's the book for me. That's great when you're five. But how terrible and tragic that far too many teenagers in the church 
go off to college or into adulthood with that same five-year-old level of understanding about the Bible. Mom and Dad, you cannot simply pray that your kid follows Christ as an adult while neglecting to do the most basic task to prepare him or her for that journey. You cannot cross your fingers and hope that all of your decisions about schooling and extracurricular activities and social events and all the rest are going to ensure your kid follows Jesus as an adult while not doing the most basic thing to help him or her do so. The building an increasing level of understanding and engagement with the Bible as your child grows is one of the most critical tasks that a believing parent can do. And the other point to this too is that it's not as if parents don't have a wealth of resources to rely on. In just a minute, I'm going to talk about our little guide that I've put together about the reliability of Scripture. And in the guide, I'll just tell you now, at the back is just a brief list of some resources that you can use to engage in these questions further. But the issue I had is not finding enough resources to recommend to you. The issue is that there are so many. There are literally hundreds of books, thousands of online articles, podcasts galore, teaching series from various ministries, Bible studies, and more that all go through these questions in one way or another. The issue for moms and dads is not that there are too few resources. It's frankly just deciding which resources work best for you and your family. My encouragement is first for moms and dads to do some reading and exploring on their own. That way they can look for some good resources that they like and then think about how they want to do that with their kids and maybe they can find some resources along those same lines for their kids. Um, we're hoping to do our own multimedia kit on this topic down the road, but for now we're just producing this short little guide to help uh, you on this journey. Uh, so for the next few minutes, I'm going to highlight briefly some of the things that we talk about in the guide. In case you haven't done so, you can go to our website, www.crosslifetoday.org, and subscribe to receive uh, important updates. We don't send out a lot, only when something really good is coming out. And when you do that, you'll receive a PDF version of the guide in whatever email you subscribe through. Uh, you can also send a text uh, to 94090 with the word trustworthy. And if you do so, then you'll get a link on your phone and you can click on that and sign up as well. So you can text trustworthy to 94090 and get the link as well. So either of those ways, go to crosslifetoday.org, text trustworthy to 94090, and you can subscribe to receive occasional updates from us and you'll get a free copy of the guide. And that's what I'm going to be talking about today in the podcast. So in this guide, I talk about three basic categories that all criticisms of the Bible tend to fall into. The first category I talk about is what I call the origins category. I call it that because there are many criticisms about the Bible that at the end of the day all have to do with where the words in our Bibles came from and how they got in there to begin with. Um, now, the reason critics go after the Bible's origins is because if they can undermine the idea that the Bible is the divinely inspired Word of God, written by men who were inspired by the Spirit, then the whole Christian doctrine of Scripture just falls away. So they go after the origins of the Bible in a number of ways. One way is through what's known as source criticism. Source criticism is a fancy way of talking about how the texts in our Bibles were actually composed. Where did they come from? The Bible is made up of 66 individual books, 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books. So where do they come from? That's what uh, source critics are concerned with. 
Uh, these critics will argue that most or all of the books that are in our Bibles were not written by whomever tradition ascribes authorship to or whomever in the text itself claims to have written it. And they hold instead that that these books are either compositions uh, by multiple unknown sources that we no longer have access to or that maybe so-and-so had a part in writing it, but it's been so changed over the years that now we can't really say that this was <clears throat> that this was written by so and so. So, for example, you know, we tradition says that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, what we call the Torah or the Pentateuch. Um, but of course, a source critic would say, well, maybe Moses at some point wrote something that became part of what we have now in the Pentateuch, but over time, whatever he wrote was added to and changed. And edited, and so we have we can have no confidence today to claim that Moses wrote the Pentateuch, and uh, they'll make the same claim about just about every other book of the Bible. Uh, in some cases, like the Pentateuch, um, which by the way is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, for those keeping track at home, they'll claim that the books we now have are composites of many other books that were edited together, changed, developed added on to over perhaps hundreds of years. Um, but then in other cases, the, the critics will claim that even though a book will, will claim to have been written by a certain author, uh, for example, in the New Testament, Paul's letters, where you know Paul is named as the author in these letters, well, source critics will say, well, maybe Paul wrote part of it, maybe he didn't, maybe someone else is claiming Paul wrote it. But in many cases, they will deny that the, 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 the self-attested author in the book is the one who actually wrote it. Now, what's going on here is two things. One, in general, source critics don't believe God exists. <laughs> or if he does, he's not the God of the Bible. And because of this belief, nothing in the Bible can be true in any real sense. And then secondly, because they have a skeptical view of religion, they largely see uh, religion as kind of part of sociology, that religion develops in concert with culture and politics and economics and technology and so on. And so they have an evolutionary view of religion. Religion starts out rough and primitive and gradually becomes more and more refined. And this evolutionary view of religion means that all of these highly advanced literary works in the Bible, and I'm speaking of the specific books in the Bible, and listen here, that these books display such incredible literary genius, every single one of them. Their use of literary styles, plot devices, irony, drama, and much, much more. They are brilliant writings. And so the source critics believe that, that they cannot be as old as they claim. And I'm speaking really here, particularly of the Old Testament. Um, and so what had to have happened in their minds is that some elements in the Old Testament come from that ancient primitive religion. And over time, as the Israelite culture and language and technology and politics and all of that progressed, their scriptures were essentially rewritten subtly over time to conform to the increasing complexity of religious practices, desires, and questions. So, for example, some, some, some critics will say, well, the early primitive uh, religion that grew, that grew into what we now associate with Judaism or Christianity was polytheistic. And over time, that, that changed to become more monotheistic. And then there's evidence they would point to in the scriptures where we can see those monotheist 
kind of kind of suppressing and trying to get rid of the, the polytheistic views. And this is their view of religion. And it's, this is why they have this approach to the Bible. Now, obviously, this evolutionary view is a choice. And quite frankly, it's entirely a Western ideological value. There's no inherent law of evolutionary progress that can describe human life or society. Uh, it's just simply a framework that Westerners have adopted for interpreting historical data. From a secular standpoint, history is void of any meaning. There is no narrative drive to history, no organizational principle behind history. It just happens. It's just, you know What we call history is a record of all events that have happened prior to now. That's it. But human beings have always put a framework onto history to make sense out of all the data and to try to draw out meaning. It's just what we do. We're, we want to create meaning in our world. And, and this is what so secular people do this. And, and so they're looking at history, these source critics, and they're adopting a, an evolutionary framework to try to put all the data together. In Asian cultures, at least traditionally, uh, they're, they're, the predominant view there of history was a cyclical view of history. So history repeats itself through large cycles. Uh, but Western uh, culture has largely been a linear view. And in secular, modern culture, that is predominantly an evolutionary view. So all this to say that the source critic's choice to see history through a paradigm of progressive evolution is a momentary cultural moment. And it has no more claim to truth than any other version of framing history. And this just points out that critics who claim to be objective and factual are every bit as much basing their ideas about the Bible and God and history and human beings on a certain ideology just like anyone else. Uh, they're picking and choosing facts and arguments that support their worldview and leaving out those that don't. Now, me as a Christian... This line of criticism is only convincing if I don't know that there are many good and often better counter-arguments that uphold the integrity of the text. In other words, there are lots of really good responses to the claims of source critics. And so it's very easy for a Christian to go out there and find really good answers if you know that they're there. One of the biggest challenges I find with people regarding criticisms of the Bible is that they don't even know that there are good responses. And so they hear the criticisms and they just think, oh no, we're done. You know, we, 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 have no, we have no answers, but friends, there are lots of great, good answers that, that, that show a very reasonable reason for us to be able to trust in the integrity and the authenticity of our scriptures. Now, I don't have time to go into all those arguments today, but you should know that there are lots and lots of great arguments against this view that the texts of the Bible are comprised of multiple levels of clandestine changes and editings and corruptions and additions and so on. One such argument um, is that so far, out of the hundreds and thousands of manuscript evidence that we have obtained dating back to early times of Christianity, far, far more, thousands upon thousands, more than any other ancient book, not one manuscript has ever brought any significant challenge to the text of the Bible. Do you get this? Hundreds, thousands of manuscripts discovered and studied have only revealed small mistakes in manuscripts, none of which have caused any evangelical Bible scholar studying them to question the integrity of our Bibles today. Now, why is this? 
Because from the very earliest times in ancient Israel, there was a supreme value placed upon Scripture as the Word of God. From the earliest of times, it was understood that there were certain works, works of prophets, that had divine authority. And although hundreds and thousands of other Jewish and later Christian works were written, some of them good, many of them pretty wacky by our standards today, just like today, quite frankly, everyone accepted that there was a set of scriptures that did not get changed because these were divinely inspired and authoritative from God. This began right away with the books of Moses and extends all, all the way to all the books that we now have in our Old and New Testaments. In fact, modern scholars, I would argue, are far more dismissive about the Bible and the text of the Bible than ancient scribes who were copying it were. And so for this reason, because from the earliest of times, people held such a high view of these books from the time that they were written, and because they understood that these books were divinely inspired, they carefully copied the text from generation to generation to ensure they were kept in circulation. Um, just two more further proofs of the authenticity of the books of the Bible, and then I'll move on. One is that you can see how older books of the Bible reflect certain cultures and how the style and the language and the content of the books changed as history moved on. You know, as new powers arose in Israel's world, as cultures changed and languages changed, and all of these are reflected in, in, in Scripture itself, and it gives a powerful witness, not that individual books were rewritten over time to appease newer ideas and newer religious tastes, but that newer books were added to Scripture in recognition that they were divinely inspired. In other words, if the source critics were right, that much of Scripture, especially the Old Testament, went through a process of progressive editing and rewritings and changes, then one would expect much more uniformity throughout all the books in terms of style and language and motifs, etc. But instead, what one finds is that a practiced Hebrew scholar can put books into a certain date range of composition just by looking at the style, the historical references, the language used, the terminology, etc. Now, this would not be true if they were all heavily corrupted by editors over time. And the second additional proof, just real quickly, about the authenticity of the books of the Bible is that if people were going to go about uh, changing the books over time, editing them, rewriting them, adding to them, then they would likely remove the thorny elements that, uh, in order to make it read easier and better. So, for example, right away in Genesis 1 and 2, there's a thorny issue. In Genesis 1, it portrays God making all things. Then on day 6, he makes human beings last of all. Then you go to Genesis 2, and all of a sudden we're back where human beings haven't been made yet. And the Hebrew here is a little bit murky, but one way to read it is that before a certain creation, before certain creation events happened, God made Adam and Eve. And that's a little different than Genesis 1 portrays it. There are great explanations of how you can uh, see these two texts go hand in hand. But for argument's sake, we should point out that if the books of the Bible were undergoing continuous editing and improvement, why would someone not come in and just smooth things out like this? There are many, many places in the Old Testament and the New that could use some smoothing out from an editing standpoint. Um, but it stands to reason that if there was an ongoing process of editing, it would be reflected in the text, that things would be smoothed out. In fact, uh, this is what source criticism is all about, quite frankly. It's about back-engineering the editing process to see what the original really was. But because the books of the Bible are written so cohesively and so well... 
even with places that can be a bit sticky at points. Uh, source critics can't even agree among themselves which part of which book belongs to which original source. In other words, they'll take the book of Genesis and one scholar will say, well, here, these five parts belong to this original source and these five parts belong to that original source and these two parts belong to that. But they, they disagree with one another about what goes where. And that's because there is no clear evidence at all in the text itself of any original sources that you can kind of divide up and compartmentalize. Definitely someone like Moses would have used original sources, pre-existing material. The, the, the material in Genesis all precedes Moses. So no doubt he had some original uh, documents that he worked with. And same for uh, I'm sure same for other Old Testament and New Testament books. But Moses himself sat down and wrote what we now can see, what we now call the Pentateuch. And, and that's different from saying Moses wrote a little bit and then a bunch of people later on added a whole bunch of things that have nothing to do with what Moses actually wrote. Those are two very different things. Yes, authors, inspired authors would have used uh, original sources, original material that was already known to them as inspired by God. But that's a very different argument from saying that someone came in after uh, a book was written and completely edited or changed it, or that Moses never even wrote, for example, the Pentateuch that, that is just purely composited over time by a bunch of people working together. And so um, we don't want to get confused about those two arguments. But all that to say is that when you look at the text of the Bible today, they, they display such a high degree of uniformity and cohesion within each book that it's very difficult to argue that they just were some sort of um, long, extensive editing process over time. So that's that for the source criticism argument. Um, it was really in vogue in the 20th century. Uh, in fact, many scholarly commentaries spend a great deal of time on these questions. Uh, I'm not sure myself how in vogue it is today among scholars, uh, but I do know that when you read a lot of commentaries today, they, they deal with the text as we have it today because they find much greater fruitfulness in studying the text as one cohesive unit uh, than trying to piecemeal some sort of uh, imaginary sources together from without any evidence or any um, purely subjective based on one's own, own intuition. And so that's the way a lot of commentaries are going today. Um, but uh, obviously there's still people out there, many of them, who will claim that you know, the books of the Bible are purely uh, the result of historical editing and, and, and composition by various people that we have no longer access to. But at the end of the day, when you read the books of the Bible and you see the brilliance of their composition, you see how clearly an author begins and ends a book with uh, the same thematic elements and you, you, you can see plots unfolding and irony unfolding throughout books. Um, to me, it's undeniable that you had single authorship of these books and that uh, history, for the most part, is reliable when it comes to ascribing which book was written by which person. Uh, so I'm going to move on. That's, that's, you know, source criticism. That's kind of what that, that argument's all about. Um, I should also, I should mention, though, that, that Christians affirm and believe uh, that the original manuscripts uh, were divinely inspired. So in cases, as I mentioned earlier, in cases where there were minor scribal errors or where there are questions about a particular word or passage, um, they do not undermine a Christian doctrine of inspiration because our view applies only to the original manuscripts. So the Christian view of inspiration is not saying that, you know, let's say when Moses wrote the Pentateuch, 
if over time, through the hundreds of years since it's been written, scribes made minor scribal errors in the text itself, that's not that error doesn't go back to God into the original act of revelation or inspiration. Uh, that's just human error. But have no fear. As I mentioned earlier, uh, uh, manuscript scholars have studied these uh, the manuscripts, the evidence that we have extensively, and they continue to do so today. In fact, they're building massive digital databases of all of these manuscripts, and they're studying them, and they're using uh, new technology to get it at manuscripts that before seemed unreadable. And in every case, every case, uh, they find that the text of the Bible that we have today, that we are using, has a, that we can have a high degree of confidence in its accuracy to the original composition. Um, that's all for source criticism. Uh, but there is another criticism that I do want to bring up uh, that does relate to origins. And I want to bring this one up because it is very popular in our culture today. And I think this is, is actually the one that our, our kids are most likely going to hear if they're in a college classroom. There's been an increasing number of critical scholars like Bart Ehrman, and these guys have a highly skeptical view of religion, and, and they basically believe, or at least one of their beliefs, is that the books that we have in our Bibles today have no authoritative claim to truth because the only reason they're in the Bible, the only reason they're considered scripture, is that religious and political influencers back in the day were able to elevate certain books over others as quote-unquote authorized scriptures. And so our Bibles actually are a product of oppression, propaganda, scheming, and, cor- <laughs> and corruption. Um, you know, so, for example, Bart Ehrman will say something like, there were many, quote-unquote, Christianities at the time of the early church. So who's to say what we claim now to be Orthodox Christianity is any more Orthodox than other versions of Christianity? The only reason these scholars will claim is that uh, the only reason we have these views is that uh, powerful people use their influence to elevate certain books as and ideas as orthodox and to ban others. And usually the followers also got banned or martyred or killed or whatever. Um, now, while this criticism plays very well in our increasingly socialist country, where everyone assumes that powerful people are all bad and all corrupt, and where people assume that power can only be exercised in corrupt, oppressive ways, it is, in fact, completely unfounded from history. Now, I will just say, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly skeptical of human beings. I'm very skeptical of human beings. And so I, I recognize the reality that, yes, human beings in power, sinful human beings in power, will do sinful things. But when it comes to Christianity and when it comes to our our text that we have in the Bible, the historical evidence is clear that Christians from from the very beginning had a certain set of core beliefs and that as Christianity spread from Jerusalem outward, these beliefs did not alter. They were not changed. Certainly they they, they grew and they developed and, and, and were communicated and expressed in different cultures in ways that were different from Jerusalem. But the core ideas, for example, that Jesus is God, that he's God in the flesh, you know, as John 1, 14 said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That idea was existent from the very beginning after Jesus' resurrection. I mean, the Gospels themselves uh, show quite clearly how the, the apostles, the disciples, did not get it during Jesus' earthly lifetime. I mean, all of them pretty much clearly show that they did not understand who Jesus was, what his mission was. But Acts shows quite clearly that after his resurrection, after his ascension, after the coming of the Spirit, and, and the day of Pentecost, that the apostles began to finally understand who Jesus was. And, and you have Acts 2 where Peter declares Jesus 
to he uses the language of, of Jesus as Lord, which is which is uh, theistic terms. Jesus is God. From the very beginning of the Christian movement, people uh, th- th- those who followed Jesus understood him to be God, and they worshipped him as such. And so the argument that there were many Christianities competing with one another, and it wasn't until say 300 or 400 years after Jesus that we finally have what we now consider to be Orthodox Christianity, that is simply not true. All of the best historical evidence shows that in the case of Jesus and Christianity, that early followers held a consistent set of beliefs about Jesus. And that as, as the movement grew, these beliefs did not change. Now, there is plenty of evidence to show that in a local area, there were certainly local teachers and local movements and cults that were beginning to syncretize various belief systems into Christianity. You certainly have, have Gnosticism, which was a major threat to early Christianity, as well as uh, Arianism and Pelagianism that came up later on. But all of these uh, movements, a scholar can go and look at the textual evidence and see quite clearly where they deviate from what was considered to be the consistent standard beliefs of Christians from a, from the very beginning. There wasn't something like that only happened in year 400 AD or 350 AD. That from the very beginning, the, the textual evidence is clear that Christians had a certain core set of beliefs and that if you deviated from those, you were considered to be deviating from, from what Christianity taught. And even in the New Testament, we see signs of this. When you go and you read John's letters, for example, 1 John and 2 John, uh, when you read the book of Jude, when you read the book of Hebrews, when you read the book of Romans, at the end of Romans, you see plenty of times where the apostles are engaging with false teachers. And in, in the case of John's letters, he, he says, we, they went out from us and they were never of us. There's very clearly a movement that, that kind of, it's probably happened in Ephesus, a movement of people who were originally part of the church who left over false beliefs. And so from the very beginning, there were people who were deviating from what the apostles were teaching. But again, it's one thing to claim that there was no core set of apostolic teaching or core set of beliefs, uh, that there were just a bunch of Christianities out there, and this one only won out over hundreds of years of competition and, and power struggles. That's what Bart Ehrman and others would claim. That's very different from the claim to say that there was an Orthodox Christian set of beliefs and that as it spread out, there were local deviations based on false teaching and heresy and all kinds of things going on. And so a lot of times when these people parade around the Gospels that were never in the New Testament or the banished books of the Bible, usually these books refer, usually these these, these books are referring to uh, documents that were written in these local contexts that the larger church said, yeah. Uh, that's not what we believe. Thanks, but no thanks. And so the Gospel of Thomas is like that and many other so-called Gospels because as Christianity was growing and spreading, well, there were lots of people who were religious in the in the time of the early church. And so people, you know, hodgepodge, syncretized things with the local beliefs. People maybe wanted to have their own. Come on, we have plenty of people today, right, who want to make a name for themselves by having their own little Jesus cult. And, and we recognize how, how weird those things are. Well, that I mean, is, if that's going on today, how much more is it going on in the early church? But none of that has to. None of that is at all um, similar to saying that there was no belief system that 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 was consistent among Christians in the early church, and it was simply a matter of time and infighting and and, and political struggles that led to what we now call Orthodox Christianity. The textual evidence is very clear 
uh, in the New Testament, especially, which was, by the way, uh, the best evidence supports a very early uh, early writing for almost all New Testament documents. All of them were written within the first century. So between the years, let's just say around, uh, you know, 40 AD to, to John's gospel being probably in the 70s or actually 80s or 90s. Um, so within 60 years of Jesus' death and resurrection, the, the New Testament was written. And there were there are doubtless other letters written or other documents written that are not scripture that are that were still uh, you know truthful in terms of what Christians believe. There's, it has to have been, right? There, there are plenty of churches all over the new uh, the new uh, all over Europe and, and the Roman world that were forming and taking shape and no doubt people were writing and talking about their faith and many of those things would have been great, but they've all been lost to history because they weren't preserved because they're not scripture. And so uh, we have evidence very early on that, that, that Christians held to a consistent set of beliefs. And this all comes out of Judaism because Christianity is not a separate religion. Christianity is the extension of the Jewish faith. And just as I said earlier about the Pentateuch, uh, Christians inherited that high view of divine inspiration, the high view of the authority of God's word. And so the words that were attested to the apostles and to the apostolic uh, teams these were held in a very different category among early believers than other things written by other people, even even good things. Christians from, from the very beginning distinguished between the two because they inherited that view of divine inspiration from their their Jewish forefathers. Um, so, so that's all I'm going to say. I, I can say more. I will say that there's a great book on the guide uh, that's called The Heresy of Orthodoxy, written by Andreas Kostenberger and Michael Kruger, and it's interacting with these ideas, and it's a really good book. It's, it's mentioned in the guide. And again, you can get the guide at our website, www.crosslifetoday.org, or by texting uh, TRUSTWORTHY to 94090. So go to crosslifetoday.org, text 94090, TRUSTWORTHY, and you can get that guide. So uh, we spent a good deal of time talking about the first category of criticisms, what I call in the guide the origins category. The second category of criticism, or you might say the second bucket where you can dump a lot of claims by critics, is the category of accuracy. Lots of criticism about the Bible essentially boils down to claims that the Bible is not historically or scientifically accurate. Dates are wrong, events are outright made up. Like the, like the uh, Exodus, for example, facts are changed to suit someone's agenda, or in terms of science, the basic argument is simply that, well, these people were ancient and superstitious, so nothing in there can be scientifically uh, valuable, so don't even make that argument. Now, there's tons here. I'm not going to even pretend to cover all of this ground. I'm only going to make one point, and it's a point that I bring up in the guide, and here it is. Whenever God reveals himself to us, he always always accommodates himself to our finitude, to our limited knowledge and existence. God is and has always been God. It's ridiculous to even assert something like, well, if the Bible were true, then why does God uh, in Genesis 1 not describe creation in relation to what we now know to be the Big Bang and dinosaurs? Uh, Why doesn't he tell us creation in terms of what modern science now knows? Now, that question, by the way, I'm presenting that as a secularist, right? That's not actually, I don't have that question. I'm actually pretty conservative when it comes to Genesis 1. I'm just saying that, you know, if a secularist were to ask about Genesis 1, they might say, well, how come it doesn't tell about creation from from what we now know to be true from modern science? Um, Here's the thing about that. It is arrogant 
arrogant to assume that if God told us about creation in a way that conforms to modern science, they would actually be more accurate or truthful than what's in Genesis 1. In other words, even from the secularist's own point of view, he's assuming that modern science is, let's just say, in the grand scheme of absolute truth, more accurate than what is told to us in Genesis 1. But that's incredibly arrogant. And the reason is because our modern science barely understands anything about anything about anything. If we were to take them on their own terms for a minute, you know, how much does science, how much do scientists really know about the universe? How much do scientists really know about physics and quantum mechanics and all the rest? How much do they really know about the origins of life? You know what? We don't know because we, we don't even know how much we don't know because we don't know what we don't know. We don't know what we don't know. And so to assume that if Genesis 1 was written according to the teachings of scientists today, that it would be more accurate to reality, that is a massive statement about what we assume scientists today know about reality. And quite frankly, gauging by the size and the complexity and the incomprehensible vastness of the universe, and given our incredible finiteness and, and, and in terms of our ability to comprehend knowledge and our lifespan and everything, I would wager that we still know next to nothing about creation from God's perspective. And this is what I'm getting at. Even if, even if God were to reveal a creation account to us today that was more in line with our understanding of the world, it would still be just as wrong or inaccurate as what he revealed to the people living at the time of Moses uh, in Genesis from the standpoint of what we might consider to be absolute 100% truth of the universe. You know, the scientific standard of accuracy is complete and total, 100% knowledge of the universe, then yes, we could say the Bible is wrong. Not because the Bible tells us what isn't true, but because the Bible reveals truth to us in a way that we can comprehend as finite human beings. The only solution that would satisfy critics about science in the Bible would be if the Bible revealed absolute reality from God's perspective. That would be 100% science in an absolute sense. But God cannot and will not do that because to do so would violate our humanity. God made us finite creatures for a reason. And he's not going to violate our psyches by communicating to us in ways that would fundamentally shatter our brains. So yes, I believe that Genesis 1 is absolutely true. And yes, I believe it does not tell us everything about everything about creation. And yes, I believe that those two statements can coexist because I recognize that all revelation requires God to accommodate himself to human limitations. Quite frankly, and also this, by the way, is the very essence of the incarnation. Look, if you think it's wrong of God to not tell us everything there is to know about creation in the universe, if you think it's wrong of God to willingly and graciously limit himself, to reveal himself in ways that we can comprehend and relate to, then, then you have no idea what the incarnation actually means. All of scripture as revelation from God points to the incarnation. The incarnation is the transcendent, infinite, eternal, holy, omnipotent God becoming human. John says in 114 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory as the, as of the only one from the Father, full of grace and truth. God dwelt among us. 
as one of us. This is the apex of God's revelation, of God communicating to us in ways that we can relate to and respond to. So yes, Genesis 1 is absolutely true in regard to its communication of God's creative activity as it bears on our reality. And it is also God's real truth accommodated to human modes of understanding at the time that God revealed them to Moses. So to ask, well, is it absolutely true, is folly. It's folly. Because the same could be asked of all scripture. Think about it. God used shepherds and priests and all kinds of folks he inspired to write his word. Do you not think that in doing so, every single one of them communicated to us God's truth in what we might think of as less than absolute ways? We know they did, because God's truth was communicated at specific times in specific places through specific people living in specific cultures and dealing with specific issues. This is the very nature of inspiration. And so to, to hold up Genesis 1 and say, well, this isn't absolutely how God created things, so it must be wrong, is a completely false understanding of, of the very nature of revelation and inspiration. So I believe that when God communicated to Moses and to the early followers of, of Yahweh out in the desert after Exodus, that he communicated what is absolutely true in a way that they could comprehend. Uh, I'm going to give you just a helpful analogy, and I'll close with this. And then you can go read some of the really good books that are in the guide. Imagine that you're a parent trying to explain where babies come from to a young child. How would you respond? You know, you, your, your, your six-year-old comes up and says, Mommy, Daddy, where do babies come from? How do you respond? Well, I, I think you might say something like this. Well, when a mommy and daddy really like each other, they get married. They go to church and all of their family and their friends are there and they pledge to love and support each other their whole lives. And after they get married, mom and dad will kiss and they'll spend time holding each other because we love each other. And from that, God will put a baby in mommy's tummy. Now, is everything I just said factually accurate? Yes. It is factually accurate to say, where do babies come from? Well, babies come from a man and a woman who get married. Now, I know you don't have to get married, but from a Christian point of view, this is what we want to teach, right? And in fact, you can see how my answer is actually already bringing into it uh, moral truth, not just scientific facts. And indeed, Genesis 1 brings in a lot of great moral truth about God and the world, not just bare-bones scientific facts. So God, so man, woman, get married, they commit to love each other, there's physical affection involved, and God puts a baby in mommy's tummy. All that is factually true. But if I went to my OBGYN, or actually <laughs> I wouldn't go, if my wife went to an OBGYN, to have, we would hope that that OBGYN would not have that same level of knowledge about babies, about where babies come from, right? They, they better have a medical understanding of where babies come from because that's what we need in the, from the OBGYN. And of course, we can say ultimately no one knows where babies come from because all of that is part of God's sovereign plan. But biologically, certainly a doctor knows a lot more than what I explained to my five-year-old. But what I want you to see is that what I told my five-year-old is still factually true. It's just been accommodated to what's appropriate at her level of, of, of comprehension and to what she needs to know based on why she's asking the question. And God always does the same. You know, the, the, the distance between uh, a child and their parent doesn't even begin to describe the distance between us and God. And yet, in the same manner, in a much more infinite, only God kind of way, God condescends to communicate to us as a holy, transcendent God in His truth, 
in ways that we can comprehend and in ways that we actually need to know it. Now, I'll leave it to the books and the guide to go further on this question. There's some really good ones in there. I really encourage you to, to, to pick them up, especially if you have a high school age kid, because uh, these are going to be really, uh, you have to talk about these things with your kid. And by the way, when I say talk about them with your kids, I don't mean talk about them in a defensive, hyper intense, um, anxious filled way. That's actually going to communicate the opposite to your kids. If you talk to your kids in a defensive, argumentative, I'm talking about not, not, not with them, but even with you know, the, the critical scholarship, you in your heart or in your mind, you can be frustrated at the stupidity of some of the arguments out there. You can be frustrated by some, by some of the what goes on. But to your child, it's very important that you communicate low levels of anxiety about this, low levels of fear, low levels of defensiveness, because if you're anxious or fearful or defensive, your child's going to say, okay, yeah, my dad's telling me that it's okay to trust in the Bible, but I don't know if he really believes it himself. And so being able to explore these things with a truly open, uh, calm, um, curious curiosity will actually encourage your kid to not see these things as so threatening to their faith, right? You don't want to make these criticisms um, the crux of their faith. These are not the, they shouldn't believe in the Bible or they should, they certainly shouldn't believe in Jesus because um, they can make certain arguments about the historicity of the Bible, the accuracy of the Bible. They believe in Jesus because he's God and because he's died on the cross and he saved them. And God has opened their eyes to see his truth in his word. And these arguments that we're looking at in terms of, of the reliability of scripture, they give us reasons for confidence, but they don't, they don't replace our faith. So don't make these discussions a matter of life and death, all or nothing, uh, issues. Just l- look at it with an open mind and explore it together and ask questions and be curious. That's actually going to do a lot for your kid to, to not feel so threatened when they hear these arguments on a college campus and to go, yeah, I've heard that. And I know there's plenty of good reasons why what you're saying is, is you know, can be qualified or is not true or why you're saying them in the way you're saying them. Uh, but they don't feel so threatened or defensive when they hear those arguments uh, at work or in the, in, in, you know at, at school or so forth. So have those discussions in an open, uh, low anxiety way. Um, so that's it for origins, uh, for um, accuracy. There, there's lots more that could be said, of course. But I, I do want to close. The last point I bring up in the in the guide, the last category I talk about is believability. And what I say there is, I say essentially all criticisms about the Bible basically boil down to uh, that the the scholars that that movement of critical scholarship wants to reject uh, God and wants to replace him with a God of their own or just no God at all. But it's really critical for people to understand that these are not, although people bring up history and science and all these other arguments, at the end of the day, what's at heart, this argument, what's what's at heart about this discussion is it's a religious discussion. The heart of this discussion, the heart of this debate or these arguments is religious. It's not scientific. It's not historical. It's not textual criticism. It's a religious, spiritual argument. Uh, those who are making these criticisms and those who are believing them are doing so primarily for spiritual, religious reasons. And so the great news about that is that as a believer, we don't need to feel like we're somehow um, you know, playing on, on, on an unfair field where you have scholars with all these facts and knowledge and history and you just have what you believe. Both uh, both the Christian and the critical scholar are approaching this discussion from what they believe to be true about God and the world. And uh, you can marshal evidence on either side, 
but I, of course, would 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 believe quite firmly that the that the the evidence is decisively in favor of supporting the orthodox views of the Bible and the orthodox and our orthodox faith and how we describe it, how we believe, uh, what we believe about salvation, about God. I think the historical, the scientific uh, questions. Uh, so the answers that can, that can be provided through really, really smart guys are really good answers, and, and they help you see that what we believe to be true about God, it, it conforms with the world around us, and we don't need to feel so threatened about these things. And so the same goes for all the origin stuff. Lots of great uh, books I, I reference in there, and there's tons more outside of that. Again, you can go to www.crosslifetoday.org to uh, hit the yellow subscribe button to, to add to our newsletter, and you'll get you'll get the, the free guide downloaded to your in, to your inbox, or just type in um, on your phone, just text 94090, text the word trustworthy to 94090 and you'll get a link to, to subscribe that way i hope this has been good for you i encourage you to no matter i don't care whether you use our guide or not but i do think that this is a absolutely critical area for you with your kids to talk about these things and if, if i don't care if you don't have any kids but if you're a believer and you've you, you've never really engaged with these questions, I would encourage you to pick up one of the two books and uh, just grow as a believer and just seeing the incredible ways that God has raised up brilliant thinkers and scholars uh, to help us integrate our faith into uh, the factual, historical, scientific world around us. Take care, you all. God bless. Have a great day. Bye-bye. so much for listening to today's conversation don't forget to subscribe to our channel using your preferred podcast app and to join us again next week conversations for life is a listener supported ministry of cross life cross life exists to equip and empower married couples and parents to cultivate life in the home for more information and additional resources mentioned in today's episode please visit our website crosslifetoday.org you can also find us on Facebook at Cross Life Resources, Instagram, and Twitter. Until next time, take care and God bless.